Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give you thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the full fulfillness of him fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome those who are here in person to the Lewa campus. Uh, summer is just about over, so it's kind of fun. Also, those who are online, good morning. Well, have you heard the phrase, anxiety culture? If you haven't, I'm a bit surprised because it's becoming very mainstream in describing our cultural moment. Psychiatrist Dr. Ellen Bora puts this this way. I think she does it really well. She says, if you could drop a litmus strip into the stew of modern Western culture, it would reveal that the tone of modern life is anxiety. Anxiety is the verb, the vibe, the texture, and the pH of our age. The meteoric rise of anxiety in our culture has taken many people by surprise and many are noticing. In fact, social science researchers are really looking at this a lot right now and there's a whole group of them around the world forming. They look to the challenges of pandemics, climate, technology, overwhelming information, the ubiquitous social media, and they point out with this summary. These are seeping into our collectious consciousness, quote, building on an increased sense of insecurity and powerlessness and great anxiety over a very uncertain future. I think it's fair to say for all of us that we are very anxious people living in a very anxious age. Isn't it true we struggle to trust leaders organizations, institutions. And many of us live with this disconcerting sense that everything seems to be spinning out of control. The powers that are in the world, in media, military, economic, educational, yes, ecclesiastical, political and governmental, often seem to have a very nefarious motive and do not seem to have our best interests at heart. 
question I have is, do our lives need to be consumed by the fearful anxiety of our age? Is there an antidote to this kind of pervasive anxiety? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 1. Now imagine this, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul penned this remarkable letter in the context of what I think it's fair to say was a very anxiety culture. Followers of Jesus, located now in modern Turkey, faced a very fearful, anxious, uncertain world. Historians tell us, the first century of this time, that many people lived under a heavy-handed, oppressive, often capricious, arbitrary, and unpredictable Roman government. They also faced pandemics and health matters and natural disasters and economic issues and the anxiety that is a reality of everyday life and difficult, messy relationships. But in addition, first century historians of this time tell us there was a massive sense of fear around occultic magic, all kinds of superstition, an awareness of all kinds of unseen powers that shaped the agora, the marketplace, and was a daily source of anxiety in a very mysterious, unpredictable, and very fearful daily life. This was the first century. It is against this backdrop, amazingly, the Apostle Paul pens such hopeful news for first century readers who are dealing with great anxiety, and may I say, perfectly adapted to the 21st century and to our cultural moment. Paul wants us to hear with both heart and mind that we need not to be anxious, to have the anxiety of our age, but rather to be prayerful. And he will want us to grasp something very important, that prayer is God's most powerful antidote to anxiety. Now last week we began a new message series across our campuses. We've entitled it, Very Intentionally Reconstructing Faith. Well, let me say just a word about this because a maturing Christian faith often goes through a threefold process. This has been true since the beginning. And I think I have a slide up here to give you a picture of this. There's a sense of construction. That is, we learn the foundations. But often along with that, we pick up some need for deconstruction. That is, impoverished, unbiblical understandings that seep into our idea of faith. And then they need to be reconstructed. In other words, we've often said at Christ's Faith our history, the process of formation involves learning and learning and relearning. It's the same kind of idea. Okay? So that's why we've titled uh, this series Reconstruction. Because this is a part of a more deeper integral faith that is deeply biblical and Christ-honoring. Okay, so I just want to make sure I mention that because the word deconstruction sometimes can have very negative and does sometimes have negative connotations. But in our context, we're understanding it in a formational way. Okay, makes sense? So last week, Pastor Brent introduced to us to this amazing letter of the book of Ephesians. And last week, we explored the first part of this chapter, which is really stunning in its original Greek context because it is really only one sentence. It's really stunning. And in one long sentence, in verses 3 through 14, Paul takes us to the highest summit of some of the most profound biblical theological truths in the entire Bible. 
And he describes it, if you're with us, with breathtaking literary beauty and astonishing wonder what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he repeats this several times, a follower of Jesus in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So pondering these rich truths flowing out of his inspired pen, I have this, I think, somewhat sanctified imagination knowing Rabbi Paul somewhat and the posture of prayer that Paul most likely gets down on his knees as he either pens this or writes this or dictates this to his secretary or amuensis. And as Paul is on his knees, at least in my mind, he's praying and he invites his readers not to an academic exercise, but to invite him and each who will come with him in this prayerful place, this holy place of intimacy, he is now experiencing as he writes these words with the triune God. I don't want you to miss that. And as we encounter with Paul the triune God in prayer, in verses 15 to 23, I want us to consider three anxiety-reducing truths about prayer that Paul gives us. Here's how the text flows, okay? So if you're taking notes or arranging your thought in your mind, here's how it goes. First, prayer helps us regain a hopeful perspective, a hopeful perspective. Secondly, prayer helps us remember who really is in charge in the world. And lastly, prayer helps us reconstruct a more communal faith. Okay, so here we go into Paul's brilliant prayer. First, prayer helps us regain a hopeful perspective. And in verses 15 through 16, you'll notice Paul begins this section. He expresses thanksgiving for his readers, and he tells them, I'm praying for you. And beginning in verse 17, he prays for them that, notice, that what? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint. Wow. Or in Minnesota we'd say, ufta. That's a lot. But it's brilliant. It's beautiful. And it's compellingly relevant to your life and mine this morning. Now whether we are religious or irreligious. We all pray in some way. I think that's fair to say. At some point in our lives. Right? You may have this week or may this week be facing that big test in class, right? And before you take that class or that test, you shoot up a prayer. Or you may be anticipating a job interview this week that you really want. What do you do? You pray before you walk into that interview. Or you may have the opportunity to sit by the bedside of a loved one who is sick. And let me tell you those moments of hopelessness and heartache you pray. Or in the middle of the night, right? When the deepest, at least for me, the deepest mysteries, agonies, longings of my heart awaken me from my sleep. We all pray. We not only cry out to God when we find ourselves over our heads in life. Or the deepest longings for something we long to have that never comes. Or we somehow try to make sense of a confusing world. And as creatures made in the image of God, God's word tells us we were created to pray. Yes. To experience the ongoing intimate communion with our triune God that we increasingly know and are increasingly known by. This is God's creation designed for you and me. 
So what we need to grasp is to pray is as right and normal as it is for us to breathe. Let that sink in a little bit. But what I want to focus here is that prayer is also amazingly revealing. Our prayerful words, right, yours and mine, speak volumes. Volumes as to our current belief or understanding of just who we are praying to. Who we perceive God to really be and what he is up to in the lives of of our loved ones, our lives, and in the world. And in the depths of our hearts, our prayers reveal much. That is, our perception of the nearness or the distance of God's manifest presence. What I'm struck here by, maybe you are too as you look at this text, is how Paul prays so differently than I do. Does that sort of grab you? Paul's prayer here is extremely revealing. Not only what he prays for, but what he doesn't pray for. You following me? So, Paul prays for these followers of Jesus, not that they would have a good day. Now, as important as that may be. Or that they'd be in good, perfect health, as good as that may be. But notice what the text says but rather that they would increasingly, supernaturally, increasingly grasp who God really is. That they would have an ever-increasing and expanded vision of God himself. And with that would come the deeper experience of richer intimacy with him, a closeness to him, and the tender affections of their heart. I love Paul's prayerful phrase. In fact, I think this whole text centers in this from a beauty standpoint, an artistry standpoint. It's the phrase, notice your text, the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. This is stunning literary imagery, but it captures also the very heartbeat of Paul's intercessory prayer. Paul is longing for these brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing very anxious times, a very anxious world, very brokenness in their world, to see things that they are not yet fully seeing nor yet fully experiencing. This is what he longs for. Paul longs that they'd gain greater spiritual insight regarding their calling, you'll notice that in the text, and to internalize and embody more of just who they really are in Christ. So Paul, Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, longs that they would embrace with heart and mind the transcendent, supernatural, and secure hope that is theirs now. And the rich inheritance that will also be theirs as they now await with anticipation because they are in the first part of the chapter, they are blessed, they are beloved, and they are belonging children in the family of God. Paul's prayer does not ignore, if you notice, very real challenges and anxiety-provoking realities of, their, of these brothers and sisters in Christ's daily life. In fact, as we will see in the rest of this series, throughout the rest of the letter, Paul will speak about these challenges in the workplace, in marriage, right? All dimensions of life. 
So just wait for that. But notice what he starts with. That's intentional. He'll get to that. But his focus is on prayer. And he prays that the glorious truth of the gospel would catapult them to a much higher vantage point than any of the messy, fearful, difficult circumstances that they are facing. Paul's prayer is specifically aimed at a literary bullseye. What is that? That our hearts would be flooded and our minds would be flooded with hopeful perspective. I was reminded of this recently. Uh, Liz and I had the joy of having a week on the West Coast and having a little vacation time. And if you've hung out on the coast of Oregon, you know that it's cloudy a lot. Okay. And I remember when we boarded the plane in Portland, I have to tell you, the sky was overcast to the core. I mean, the cloud ceiling was just like right on our heads. It's kind of a bummer thing, right? On a sunny day, the clouds are foreboding. But you have experienced this, and we experience this in a stunning way, when the plane reached a higher altitude, and the sun was shining bright, and the clouds below us were not foreboding or dark, they were puffy and fun and lazy and beautiful. Right? You've seen that. It was so different than on the ground. And seeing the world at 30,000 feet is a whole lot different than on the ground. Instead of feeling socked in by clouds, y'all, we experienced, I have to say, just a giddiness looking out the window. It was an exhilarating sense of a world above the clouds with the sun brilliantly shining. This is what Paul is doing from a literary perspective. Paul's prayer is lifting us up. While grounded in reality, it takes us above ground in reality. You have in this text the uplifting wings of prayer, raising all of us above our fretful circumstances and bringing a life-giving and hopeful perspective. And what Paul is saying is that nothing can surpass prayer's elevated vantage point. Nothing. Prayer takes us above the clouds. When it comes to Paul's prayer, I must admit, you all, that I, I feel like a beginner. Do you feel like that when you read this? Anybody? So often in my prayers, you know, I've been doing this a while and, you know, I'm paid to do this, right? I focus on asking God to change the difficult circumstances, right, of my life first, of course, and others that I care about. And again, that is not wrong. God cares about that and we can take anything to him in prayer. But notice Paul's example here. He encourages us to pray for something more than that. That our prayers are directed not necessarily about our circumstances, be they health issues, right, relational issues, struggles, financial difficulties, but rather, where does Paul focus? He asks God to open the eyes of God's people to see their present situation in a whole new light, a glorious reality that is now partly theirs, but will be fully theirs once future in the new heavens and new earth when the story ends. See, prayer consistently moves us in that direction and meets the deepest longings of our need for security in Him. So not only does prayer focus on helping us regain a hopeful perspective in the midst of life's difficulties, notice where he goes next. 
it also helps us remember who is really in charge in the world. Look at me in verses 19 through 21. Paul continues his prayer that the eyes of their hearts may be further enlightened, but we ask, in what way? And notice what the text says. He prays that they would grasp what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named notice not only in this age but also the one to come now again there's a lot here but in his prayerful words to the eyes of faith Paul is painting in brilliant literary mastery, a powerful picture of God, the God he is praying to. And Paul's thematic emphasis, you will notice, is captured in this phrase, look at the text, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Paul is pointing his readers and listeners to the unmatched power of the triune God. And his particular focus is Jesus here. Jesus' glorious defeat of death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, exaltation to the heavenly throne, Jesus' rule and power and authority and dominion over all. And notice in the text, Paul emphasizes something that may surprise you. It's Jesus' name. Notice, he describes Jesus' name as the name above every other name that could be named or is named. Now, for Paul's first century readers, there's something more here that we often miss in the 21st century. They would have recognized the importance of Paul putting name here because in their context in the first century, they daily witnessed exorcists and magicians in their cultural context that tried to manipulate the supernatural realm and the powerful spirits by invoking their names. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, actually focuses on this, if you look later this week in Acts 19, verse 13, and describes this manipulation of the spirits around names. Don't miss that. Paul is saying to his first century readers that Jesus is the highest name above all those names. That Jesus has supremacy over all realms, power, and time itself. Do not miss that. Now, while I said, everybody prays, right? Isn't it true? We often don't pray like the Apostle Paul. Anybody ever like, like that here? <laughs> Could it be, though, that at the heart of many of our prayerful struggles, yours and mine, it's often not a struggle of prayer itself, but more a matter of grasping with heart and mind Jesus' absolute authority over everything. Including our lives. Do we really believe that Jesus has all authority now and always? That somehow in praying in Jesus' names, friends, we are praying to those, to, to the one whose name is above all names. Do we believe that? The one who is seated at the right hand of the triune heavenly throne room. And you have to ask yourself the question how could Paul so passionately and confidently pray like this? Well, I think we get a little sneak peek into the answer to that when we look at Paul's story because Paul shares it 
or at least part of it. And the radical transformation of his life on that dusty road to Damascus when he encountered the risen Christ. Let's not forget, Paul was a religious zealot. He was hunting down and persecuting any Christians he could find, period. And suddenly, Paul describes it, he encounters this intense light and he is knocked off his horse and he hears a voice. The voice is Saul, Saul, that was his Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul responds, Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And notice how the risen Jesus responds. He gives Paul his name. He says to Paul, I am Jesus. And he says, whom you are persecuting. A blinded Paul will have his eyes opened. He will see who Jesus really is for the first time. And that will change everything about his life, how he sees the entire world, everything about his ethics. Paul, a devout Pharisee, needed his impoverished faith deconstructed. Then Jesus reconstructs it. Seeing more clearly who Jesus is and his mission in the world, Paul had to do some major unlearning and relearning once he saw who Jesus really is, which is also true in our spiritual journey. Because once we see who Jesus is, it radically changes our entire worldview and everything about our life and how we see the world. Everything. Encountering the resurrected Jesus and embracing the gospel profoundly reshaped, shaped, and reconfigured Paul, and particularly his prayer life. And it will do that for us as well. Let me suggest a thought for you. One of the greatest indicators of being born again, of experiencing new life in Christ, is how our understanding and practice of prayer changes. Prayer moves from some perfunctory religious obligation and duty to the pursuit of a joyful and deeper intimacy with Jesus himself. And Paul knew there was only one name that would compel anyone to pray like this, and here he prays these words in Ephesians chapter 1, right? And I encourage you to look at Philippians chapter 2 because there's a corollary. And there he describes the name above every name, that every knee will bow in heaven and earth and confess that Jesus is Lord, right? He understood who Jesus was. And it profoundly changed his prayer. The words and proportion of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 here reminds us of an important truth. It's not just what we pray that matters. I think sometimes we miss up on that. It's who we pray to that matters most. We pray to Jesus, the one who is really in charge of the entire universe, every atom, every aspect of life. The one who is powerful and has all authority over people and nations and governments. He is the one who loves us more than anyone and has the sovereign and omnipotent agency to act on our behalf and to intervene in our lives in times of great fear and anxiety and uncertainty, the times we live in. I hear from many of you the fear and anxiety you feel about our world right now and our culture. And many times I share deeply that. But the true power of praying to Jesus is the greatest privilege imaginable to each of us. And it is beyond human comprehension. 
Prayer first helps us regain needed perspective. Secondly, prayer helps us remember who is really in charge. Okay. And lastly, notice where Paul goes. Prayer helps us reconstruct a more communal faith. Notice where Paul goes in this text. In verses 22 to 23, he strikes the most brilliant tone of a crescendo, like an orchestra. The idea here is about Jesus and his church. There's a communal tone. And in verses 22 to 23, Paul speaks of the church, and he embeds his thoughts in an important metaphor, the body. We are going to see more and more of that as we work through this amazing book. Because the book of Ephesians spends a great deal of time talking about the church. Let me say something very clearly. The Bible speaks of the universal church, the church of history, the church in triumph. But this text is about the local church. Pastor Brent reminded us last week that this letter is written to the church at Ephesus, a local church, but it's written as a circular letter for other local churches. So Paul's focus is a local faith community. And the metaphor of the body paints a picture of a living, breathing, interdependent, intimate, flourishing community filled with the manifest presence of the resurrected Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. One of Paul's major emphasis throughout this letter is the centrality and importance of the local church in our formation and kingdom mission in the world. And when it comes to prayer, not only is prayer vital in our individual spiritual formation, it is at the very heart of a flourishing local faith community. As the body of Christ, we are called to be a praying people. When we are part of a vital local church praying community, our trust and intimacy with God and other brothers and sisters in Christ deepens. And in our intimacy with God and others, the local church community deepens, and as it does, anxiety lessens. Prayer, both individually and communally experienced, is a remarkable path to lessen anxiety, to bring greater joy and beauty in our lives. I've been fascinating watching statistical research, and I took a class in college called How to Lie with Statistics, so I'll try not to do that. But statistical research is telling us across social science that involvement in local church in almost every tribe across America is decreasing rather precipitously. At the same time, statistics are telling us that anxiety is rising like this at an alarming rate. Let me ask you a question. Could there be a corollary connection, perhaps a causal one? I'll let you answer that question. I can say this, though, with, with confidence. Because how God designed us in creation and redemption, dear friends, we simply cannot thrive as humans and as followers of Jesus without deep community. And prayer is at the very heart of a thriving local church community. So in application here, I just want to encourage us. As we are encouraging our campuses across our city, let's grow together in prayer, okay? One of the greatest ways each of us can grow closer to Christ and to each other is by engaging in the form.life. If you've not joined in, I encourage you to do that. We also have a wonderful journal that will help you pray, help you connect, help you apply this message series. Please pick one up on the way out or get one at our office, our multi-site office. So how do we begin to grow in prayer? Let me give you three encouragements. First, start where you are. 
Start where you are. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, and I've been a part of this for a long time, we all struggle with prayer. It's just true. In many ways, prayers is one of the greatest mysteries of our life. And I would bet, if I'm a betting guy, there's not one here or online this morning that feels like we pray enough or well enough. Can you relate to that? So put those thoughts aside, okay? Write it on the top of your journal, just, and then strike it out. God knows right where you are, and he longs to meet you exactly where you are and to be there for you no matter what you're feeling or facing or doubting or struggling with, right there. Prayer is simply having a conversation with God. Conversation is two-way, right? It's speaking and it's listening. And Paul reminds us here in Ephesians 1, what we say is not as important as remembering who we're praying to. So let me suggest maybe your prayer is the prayer of the disciples. You know, they didn't ask Jesus many questions, but they did ask him a question and implored him, like, Lord, teach us to pray. And maybe that's your application this morning. I never outgrow that prayer. I want you to know that. Lord, teach me to pray. Lord, teach me to pray. Start where you are, right? Start where you are. Secondly, imitate Paul's prayers. That may sound like that's not authentic. It's, it's, it's beautiful. When I read the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1, one of the things I'm always struck by is how short and compact Paul's prayers are. Does it ever strike you? And Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer, is really short. That should tell us something about the importance of compact prayers. One of the most helpful guides in my prayer life, and for many Christians across the ages, is to use the prayers of the Bible as our template and guide. I use the Psalms almost every day. And I want you to consider using some of Paul's prayers. Maybe this one in Ephesians 1. Memorize it, write it out, pray through it. Colossians chapter 1, I do that over and over again. I pray for you in Colossians chapter 1. I pray for our campuses. I pray for Christ's community, right? It's a template of my daily prayer. So when it comes to prayer, first start where you are. God knows exactly where you are. Start right there. Secondly, imitate Paul's prayers. Third, pray with someone else. That may seem a little bit intimidating, but it's absolutely transformational. In addition to our own personal times of prayer, getting involved in a small group here at Christ Community is a great way to grow in prayer as you pray with others in your church family. Praying with others will deepen your intimacy with God, but it deepens your connection with others who are followers of Jesus. We often know each other deeply by our prayers with one another. And there is a great opportunity coming up on September 1. I encourage you. It's a night of worship and prayer here at the Leewood campus. I encourage you to make that a priority in your schedule. In the midst of so many personal and cultural challenges, in these anxious times, and they are anxious times, praying together may be the most important thing we can do right now to be on mission, to be a caring family, a multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. It may be the most important thing for us right now because prayer is God's most powerful antidote to anxiety. We do not need to be anxious, but we do need to be prayerful. Lord, teach us to pray. Let's pray. With the Apostle Paul, I want to pray over you this morning, his prayer. Lord, I pray for each of us, your local body, asking that you would, be, you would fill each of us with the knowledge of your will, 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, Lord, that we may bear fruit in every good work, that we may increase in the knowledge of God, that we may be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. May we give thanks to you, O Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And we pray this as God's people, his body, in Jesus' name, the name above every name, 